Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. Hey there, podcast listeners. Today's episode of the Social Work Podcast is on religious child maltreatment. Now, longtime listeners of the podcast will remember that I first addressed this topic in 2012 when I interviewed Janet Heimlich about her book, Breaking Their Will, Shedding Light on Religious Child Maltreatment. In that episode, episode 72, Janet explained that religious child maltreatment is any abuse or neglect that's done in the name of religion or that was encouraged, condoned, or assumed as a necessary practice by a religious community. Parents are more likely to engage in religious child maltreatment when they're members of authoritarian religious communities. Janet's book is a wonderful primer on this topic, and her interview was a treasure trove of information for social workers. And following the publication of her book, Janet founded the Child Friendly Faith Project, a national nonprofit public charity that seeks to protect children from abuse and neglect enabled by religious, spiritual, and cultural ideologies. So, if the interview is all that, why am I revisiting the topic? Well, it's pretty simple. It's a huge issue that social workers know very little about. So, even though social workers are mandated reporters of child abuse and neglect, schools of social work don't train social workers to consider the role of religion in child maltreatment. And as you'll hear in today's episode, Even if a social worker suspected and reported religiously motivated child maltreatment, any investigation would run into a bunch of roadblocks, starting with one of our country's foundational principles, separation of church and state, and the freedom of religion. So, uh, a quick legal history. A series of laws were passed in the 1960s and 70s that gave child protection services the authority to intervene when a child was being abused or neglected. In 1993, the federal government passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which said that laws could not substantially burden a person's free exercise of religion. You're spanking your child because it's a documented part of your religious beliefs? Well, telling you not to would be an unreasonable burden on your free exercise of religion. Although this federal law was struck down by a court decision, 19 states have subsequently passed versions of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And at the state level, these laws challenge child protective services systems when it seems like they're interfering with people's First Amendment rights to freedom of religion. Now, let's assume that this social worker identified and reported alleged religious child maltreatment. Even if there was no constitutional issue, no Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the investigation would still have to have some proof that abuse or neglect was occurring. So what would you do if the alleged victims denied the abuse, or that the alleged perpetrators were held up as pillars of the community? Finally, If none of those were barriers, right, there were no legal barriers and there were victims willing to talk, you would still have to have investigators who are trained in identifying and documenting religious child maltreatment. And in most states, CPS systems are overburdened by limited resources and high turnover. Well, this perfect storm of issues is one of the reasons why I wanted to revisit this issue today. 
In today's episode, I speak with two people who bring very different perspectives to this issue. Bethany Britton is on the board of the Child Friendly Faith Project and is a survivor of religious child maltreatment. Anne Haralambi is a certified family law specialist and a certified child welfare specialist practicing in Tucson, Arizona. And I had two goals for our interview. The first was to give voice to the experience of people who have survived religious child maltreatment. And to that end, I present Bethany's story as a series of uninterrupted tape, meaning that you're not going to hear me ask her questions, even though I did in our interview. And the second goal was really to unpack some of the differences between the personal experience of religious child maltreatment and the professional challenges associated with protecting children from religious child maltreatment. So, to that end, you'll hear Anne and me talk about the legal, educational, and bureaucratic issues associated with religious child maltreatment. Because I did the interview with Bethany and Anne, and they touched on similar topics, I've organized today's episode kind of like I'd organize a qualitative analysis. I, I, I have four broad themes. And if this were This American Life, I might call them acts, but I, I'm not even going to go there. So the first theme is called cuddling in the name of the Lord. The second is who defines the line. The third theme is called random acts of kindness. And the last theme is called heal thyself. And if at the end of the episode, you're thinking, man, this is great stuff. I got to learn more. Stick around. I'll tell you a little bit about the 2014 Child Friendly Faith Conference and how to get a special discount for registration. And now, without further ado, on to episode 93 of the Social Work Podcast, Personal and Professional Perspectives on Religious Child Maltreatment, an interview with Bethany Britton and Anne Haralambi. This section starts out with a brief summary of some of the tensions between church and state. And then we hear Bethany tell her story of growing up in a Christian home that followed specific teachings around corporal punishment. Trigger warning for folks who have experienced abuse. Bethany talks about being beaten. Cuddling in the name of the Lord. Most of the 20th century and certainly uh, all of the 21st century so far has very much seen child rearing as something within the family's exclusive province. And so you have to go pretty far to get the government to say, okay, this is child abuse and we can come in and, and take, you know, a child out of your home. When you combine the fundamental rights of parents to raise their children as they see fit with the First Amendment right of free exercise of religion when the the maltreatment involved um, has to do specifically with religiously based beliefs. It's sort of a double whammy in favor of the parents having uh, autonomy. By the same token, the United States Supreme Court has made it very clear that parents are free to make martyrs of themselves based on their religious beliefs, but they are not free to make martyrs of their children.
my parents became Christian uh, a couple years before I was born. They were kind of in that Jesus movement where it was, you know, this this freedom that people were finding and, and kind of a respite from the rest of the world. And they saw themselves as going back to the basic, going back to what really the Bible was about. And they were involved in a church called Outreach Publication. And one of the founders was Roy Lesson, who wrote the book on spanking. My parents, they wanted to be the best Christians they could be, and they wanted to raise their children according to biblical principles. I'm the oldest of four children. Uh, there are two brothers um, and then my little sister. I have wonderful siblings. <laughs> I have a brother that I'm, I'm particularly close to, and I think that he's, he's such a gift uh, to have in my life. Oftentimes, church services were people barefoot, long hair, um, sitting in a makeshift church, kind of like a home church, and talking through and reading scriptures and, and seeking out God. The church service would get really intense and someone would, you know, the group would cast a demon out or the women would be praying with her head covered or, or, you know, it could get really intense. But a lot of times it was very intellectual and a lot of discussion. We were expected to participate with adults. We didn't go to Sunday services for children. And I found the music and the singing wonderful, but I found the speaking in tongues and, and the demon part was very frightening to me. I didn't understand it, and I was taught that there were demons and there was a real Satan. So it made for a lot of nightmares, and it... It, I definitely was guarded. I remember even being very little and being very guarded in those services. But I found the sitting through the sermon horrible because I knew that if I didn't sit according to the way my parents wanted me to, I could be punished when I got home. When we would leave church service, I wouldn't know, and I'd always be looking at my mother's face or my father's face to determine whether or not I was in trouble. It was often hard to tell because they would be socializing, so it would be the car ride home where my mother would turn and say, you know, you children disappointed me, or I expected you to sit still, and and, and it was at that point I knew that what they called a spanking was eminent. So then we would get lined up, and then they would take us through a Roy Lesson spanking. According to Roy Lesson, you know, you clearly state what the child did wrong. So they would sit us down and say, do you understand? And then there would be kind of a lecture that seemed to go on for a really long time. And then once we said we understood, then we would disrobe and um, be completely bare naked and be asked to take a submissive position. So it could be holding our ankles, holding the dresser, laying over the bed. And then my parents would have a spanking implement, which could be a bamboo stick. It could be a paddle. It could be a belt. Um, they didn't use their hands very often because they were fearful that we would be fearful of their hands. So they always used an implement. And then they would hit us until they heard a broken cry. And that was, you know, not an angry cry. We wouldn't be fighting back. It was completely submitting to the pain that they were inflicting and being very willing to accept it. And then they would consider us, uh, you know, the, our, our will would have been broken. At that point, we would be instructed to get dressed again, and then there was cuddling where we were to, you know, cuddle with my, my father and my mother, and then they would say, it's time to pray and ask God to forgive you, 
And then it was all done. And what all done meant was there was no, to be no bad attitudes. There could be no sniffling afterwards or looking depressed. We had to look cheerful um, because if we were seen as having the wrong attitude, it was determined that our will wasn't broken and we were need, in need of another uh, spanking. My mother tells the first time that she spanked me when I was six months old. I honestly don't remember it. I don't think it's possible for me to remember you know, it as a as an actual story, um, but I do think it had an effect. My siblings were beaten when they were infants. When we were toddlers, up until well, for me, up until the age of eleven, one could receive a spanking multiple times per day. So there were times when you know you'd end up, I'd end up getting spanked two and three times a day, and then there were days where nothing, where I would be really good and and nothing would have happened. And then by the time I was 11, it was very infrequent. And then the last making I received was when I was 13. But my brothers um, were spanked more often and they had, you know, they were, they got in trouble more frequently. And my little brother was what my parents, you know, that he was kind of the chainsaw kid where he just got everything wrong. And so they spanked him multiple times per day until his last spanking he received when he was 18 years old. And then my father couldn't legally hit him anymore. So how common is this approach to corporal punishment? What I hear from a lot of those people who consider themselves to be fundamentalists, you don't ever use the hand to inflict punishment because a hand is part of your body and that should be a loving thing. For them, the loving way to discipline a child would be to use an implement, a switch or a stick or a paddle or something like that. For other people who were not raised with that set of beliefs, If you're going to spank your child, you need to spank your child with your hand so you can feel how hard you're hitting the child and whether you're crossing whatever line you personally have uh, on what's too hard to hit and that it is per se abusive to use any kind of an implement. So parents coming from different belief systems, secular or religious, uh, may be trying to do something that is not motivated by sadism or things like that. Who defines the line? In this section, we hear Anne talk about the moving target that is religious child maltreatment. Where is the line between strict religious teachings and abuse or neglect? Who defines that line? Is it the government? Is it parents? Is it CPS? So where is that line that a parent crosses, as with most child protective services cases, it's initially in the eye of the CPS worker who goes out and investigates. And there are certainly situations, even outside of the religious context, where one social worker would remove a child and another social worker would not. And then you go to court and one juvenile judge would say this is a dependent child, put the child in the foster care system, or this is, you know, a good parent, we're not going to interfere. So we don't have in the United States a lot of uh, uniformity 
in terms of what is appropriate discipline, what are appropriate practices. And it, it seems like we don't have much uniformity in the standards and training that CPS workers get. When I started doing this work, we had mostly MSWs as the social workers in CPS. Most of them had children. Most of them had common sense and life experience. Now we don't have that. We have a lot of people who are not educated to be social workers, very young, have no children, have no experience, and they see somebody who looks and sounds very good. And when they talk about disciplining their children, they're not describing it as abusive. I've been in many uh, child abuse cases in juvenile court where the parents will come in and they'll bring in the elder board and the mothers from the Sunday school and everybody who talks about how wonderful these people are and how well they treat their children and how polite and well-behaved their children are and that these are not abusive people. And if people aren't even thinking about religious maltreatment as a possibility, as a hypothesis to be explored in the case, they're very likely to miss it because many of these people, you know, seem like salt of the earth, caring, wonderful people who are in many cases very well motivated. And yet they're abusing their children. When I hear my pastors talk, they are all the children of pastors. They're preacher's kids, and they talk about going to these very long services and falling asleep under the pew. They would go to revival services for two weeks straight every night, and they saw that as a good thing. So is that um, abuse of those children? Yeah, and that fits perfectly with what Brittany was saying about being terrified um, of being beaten for fidgeting in these long and what sound like really kind of disturbing for her uh, church services. And yet the parents, you know, were doing it, even from Brittany's account, they were doing it because this is what they thought was raising children from was it biblical principles. I mean, if you break your child's bones, if you chain them up in a doghouse and you leave them there to drink their, their own urine, whether you're doing it in the name of God or not, we pretty much have a societal consensus that that's abuse. What I tell people is, if you're leaving marks, pretty much the law in most places says you can intervene there. You cannot have sex with your children. You cannot expose your children to a church service where venomous snakes are three inches from your child. This is an unreasonable risk. You may think these, these things are all right, but in our society, under our laws, they are illegal. We say that this is the compelling governmental interest and, and so by compelling governmental interest, you're talking about the criteria that need to be met in order for the government to intervene in a situation like this, which seems to be religiously motivated discipline or abuse. Um, so, so 
So why is this the case with CPS that um, there seems to be this kind of difficulty pursuing investigations? I, I live in a state that sort of worships at the altar of cutting taxes and cutting resources. And while we say children are our greatest resource, we don't fund our systems sufficiently to attract people when the economy went into the Great Recession and the social services budgets across the country were being cut. So were the social supports for these parents. And we saw, you know, the numbers of people coming into the CPS system really increase. You're cutting things when you need more. And we just need to make decisions that budgets are moral documents. And if we really care about protecting our children, if we really care about providing resources to even let faith communities become aware that abuse can be going on in the name of the religion, even for the the groups not like Bethany's, where it was not a part of the teaching of the church, but where it was misunderstanding and misapplication. You know, if we're not going to take the time and spend the money to do it, I think we're better off without the illusion of saying we have a child protective services system. Let it stay in the law enforcement system. A radical idea, I know, but... (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's that's definitely a radical um, idea and probably uh, would, would be enough material for an entire podcast episode on its own. Many of these insular communities will homeschool their children. So the children not only don't, you know, have... Um, contact with the secular society that might corrupt them, but there's also no school nurse, no teacher, no coach, no other children's parents who are not part of the same group who can notice something in that child. The third section is called Random Acts of Kindness. For professionals, the problem with socially isolated families is that it makes it hard to find children who are being abused, but for the children like Bethany, the consequences of being isolated are significant and can have profound effects on the sense of identity and development. And so Bethany tells this beautiful story about how a random act of kindness provided her with perhaps her first sense of feeling human. My parents moved to the mountains when I was 12, and so we all of a sudden were in the middle of nowhere, and we were homeschooled, and we didn't see people very often. We had friends that came over occasionally, but they were usually people who thought my family was amazing, and they were interested in our pioneer existence, they were interested in our homeschool, and they asked a lot of questions, and so I felt more like an object than a person I was an object of interest, not really a person. And it we were taught that the end of the world was imminent so that everybody on the outside um, were being controlled by humanists and and that you know so there's this fear of the outside and really not knowing. And being homeschooled, I got a sixth grade education and so I didn't really have, I mean, I had books and the classics and things, and I wrote stories and had my imagination, but I didn't really understand how the outside world worked. I understood it through um, 
thought leaders of you know, like Bob Mumford, you know, we used to get tapes or um, other religious leaders, uh, Dobson, um, just people like that. So they kind of painted the outside picture for me and, and it didn't look a lot safer out there than it did where I was at. And when I talked, I had a very distinct way of relating that was based on my experiences and it was confusing to outside people. They didn't really understand me. I didn't have a friend until I didn't make, I, I didn't really make a friend who wasn't attached to my parents. Like I had a girlfriend who was way older than me. She's my mother's friend and she took a liking to me. And I think she might've suspected what was going on, but it never dawned on me to tell her because she would have told my mom. So I didn't really make friends until I was in my late or mid twenties. It was when I started actually making friends where I went out and did stuff and had talks. Most of my relationships were, were, you know, associated with the church or my extended family. And I, again, they didn't understand. They just thought I was weird. I was just different. I've done a couple of speaking events where people have asked, you know, what could we have done? You know, I spoke to a church group. What could we have done? And I think back to a situation where there was a woman who lived on the side of town and she was vaguely familiar with my family. And at some point, I was riding by her house and her dog spooked me and, and then she got the dog under control and asked me to come in and I did. I went inside. It was it, I was a little nervous and she asked me if I wanted hot cocoa and I said that I wasn't allowed to have hot cocoa and she said, well, I, I don't think that a half a cup of cocoa will matter. It's just between us and, and she befriended me and, and she talked to me and the entire time I was in her house, which couldn't have been more than 30 or 45 minutes, uh, you, I, you know, she had other kids and they just weren't around and so she was talking to me and I felt really special and we just talked about normal stuff. Like she seemed to know kind of, she seemed to be able to talk to me to my age and she didn't ask me questions and that was really refreshing. Like she didn't ask what it was like. She didn't ask, you know, kind of those voyeuristic questions that I'd gotten from other people and for the 30 or 45 minutes I was in her home I felt completely and utterly human and that was such a wonderful experience and then I went back if there's any way I could ever thank her for that that was that was an amazing gift that she gave to me that day the big problem that I've seen with particularly if you have parents who are involved in insular communities or authoritarian communities is they are getting no backup from their community that anything that they're doing is wrong. And I know I, I represent a number of churches and I uh, advise all of those pastors, you know, when you're talking about children, obey your parents. Also talk about fathers, provoke not your children unto wrath. Talk when you talk about you know, your parents know what's best for you or doing what's best for you. Also talk about there are occasions where there is abuse. And in those occasions, you don't obey. In those occasions, you tell somebody. There may be people out in the congregation that take their words and twist them in ways that those pastors never intended. So you need to explicitly talk about non-abusive ways of disciplining your children. But it's hard for people who think they're doing what God wants them to do to change because some secular authority tells them 
not to do it. They'll say, I'm going to obey God rather than you. And if their society, if their faith community is authoritarian and and approving of those kinds of harsh methods, you know, in many of those cases, removal of the children is the only thing that's going to protect those kids because the parents are not going to be willing to change what they're doing. I don't think anybody could have come in and called Child Protective Services. I don't think that that would have made a difference. For those of us who are isolated, you can't, I don't think anybody could have really come in and rescued me. So talking to me and befriending me was probably the best thing anybody could do. Like giving me a normal place, you know, invite, inviting me to, to come in, like not, not asking so many questions because all the answers I gave were all based on what I was supposed to give. So, you know, I felt like a robot and, and I think asking those questions aren't necessarily helpful, but standing alongside of someone and allowing them to have the space to kind of decompress or, you know, is, is about the best. The longest and most painful part of, of that treatment is ongoing anxiety that I experience today. I manage it, um, but a sense of hypervigilance, always being on guard, never wanting to make a mistake. I've had to work very hard on relaxing, and I know that I probably will never be without it. It will probably always be there. Um, I've been through quite a bit of therapy in terms of learning to relax, and and it's caused me to distance myself from people. So it's taken a lot for me to build a community of people and trust is very delicate for me. It's really hard to to be in a, in a relationship where people can or assert themselves in a, an authoritative way and then I, I'm not real sure always how to, how to push them back. Um, when I was young, I believed that I heard a st- small, still voice in my head that was very comforting, and it wasn't the same voice that I thought was God, but it, it wasn't the same voice that the type of God that I heard in church. So it was very separate, and I believed that that voice was comforting me all through my childhood. It would it would come and go, and um, and then at some point. The evidence that was there for God was no longer evidence. Like it wasn't, I couldn't, when I was in my 20, when I was like 25, I had already gone through several churches looking for help. And the problem was, is that the churches that I went to, when I would describe my upbringing, I was using words that were biblical. And so everybody just thought that I was rebellious, that, that I just needed to uh, heal my relationship. They didn't realize where I'd come from and how extreme it had been. And I couldn't find the words to tell them. It just, I didn't even dawn on me. I thought everybody got spanked like I did. And so um, at some point when I was 25, I just became agnostic. And then after a while, I just became atheist. This last section is called Heal Thyself. Both the victim of religious child maltreatment and the professional who's supposed to be in charge of preventing this type of child maltreatment are really having to do this on their own these days. For those who have had the experiences like mine, it's not easy, but there's help. And it's been very, very great to see that come about in the last couple of years. Janet's book was really helpful. That, that was a, it was great to connect with other stories that were like mine. Our organization has a Facebook group called Child Friendly Faith. 
and it's a closed Facebook group. We have over 400 members and that's been excellent for getting information. You, you know, I've posted and asked for help um, in understanding something or, or wanting to, to talk. You know, I'm feeling distressed or I'm, I'm feeling hopeless and, and I just need to connect and those are good places to connect. Uh, Homeschoolers Anonymous is another group. They're 500, and that's been excellent for you know posting you know experiences or, or just trying to get input or help. Um, I think at one point I posted that you know the master lock was something I just had a really tough time with, and you know when you go to high school you get a lock to put on your locker, and and so learning how to use that's been challenging. <laughs> And, you know, it was really cool to, to post that in Homeschoolers Anonymous and get, you know, huge onpouring of responses back saying, yeah, me too. <laughs> so those are some examples. There are not necessarily a huge number of places where you can get it. There are um, groups such as the National Child Protection Training Center which is in Minnesota and is very, um, very involved in training people, both prosecutors on the criminal side and also child protective services uh, people. But they're also, I know the executive director of that organization, Victor Veith, has particular expertise in religious child maltreatment. And I know they have speakers that will go out and do training. So if there is, for example, a social uh, services agency that wants to bring somebody in to do a training, um, they're available uh, to do that. There's also... Um, a group called Grace, which I'm, I believe this is what it stands for, Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment, that is specifically addressing Christian uh, religious organizations, and they also uh, can go in and do some training. Um, Jan Heimlich's book on, on uh, religious child maltreatment has a lot of of very helpful information. But what we need to have is we need to get our state or county uh, child welfare agencies, wherever they have their homes within a state, you know, to bring in people as part of their training and look at the religious child maltreatment possibilities so that people, one, are aware that it happens, and two, we're now talking about partnering with faith communities. Um, and there are a number of faith communities that want to be child friendly, that are willing to help families. And I know in my own private practice, if I'm involved with a family um, that is abusing their child, I usually will ask them directly if they have any kind of church involvement and with their permission because Obviously, there's attorney-client confidentiality, but with their permission, I'll talk to their pastor, I'll talk to other people in their faith community who can maybe mentor them in more effective ways of disciplining their children, pastors who have been very good in pointing out the scriptural errors in 
the way these parents are are thinking God wants them to raise their children and talking to them about other scriptures on being kind to children and pointing out things like, you know, they talk about sparing the rod. Um, the, sh- the rod was something a shepherd used to beat the, sh- the wolf away from the sheep. And the crook on the end of the, of the shepherd's rod was something to, to pull the, the lambs out of danger. The rod was not something to beat the lamb. The quote proverb, spare the rod and spoil the child, is not a biblical verse. And so when they hear that from a pastor, they receive it a little differently than if they hear that from a judge. Bethany, thank you so much for sharing your insights and your story with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jonathan, for asking me. This is very heartening to to hear this discussion and and to meet you and, 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 you know, and to be a part of what you're doing. I really appreciate it. Anne, thank you so much for your insights into the the laws and the how social services work and all of your experiences as a professional in this field. Thank you. You've been listening to Bethany Britton and Anne Harlamby talk about the personal and professional experience of religious child maltreatment. If you're thinking to yourself, I really want to learn more about this topic, and I wouldn't mind spending a couple days in Austin, Texas, the live music capital of the world, then you're in luck. The Child Friendly Faith Project is holding their second annual conference at the Wyndham Garden Hotel on December 4th and 5th, 2014. Janet Heimlich, author of Breaking Their Will and president of the Child Friendly Faith Project, created a special discount code so that listeners of the Social Work Podcast could register for $155, which is $40 off the regular rate of $195. So, to get the discounted rate, enter the code SWPODCAST. If you can't make it to Austin, Texas on December 4th and 5th, join me and hundreds of other people who have registered to attend the conference online. Registration information for in-person and online can be found at childfriendlyfaith.org. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast.